1: Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of New Books Network. I'm Morteza Hajizadeh, your host from Critical Theory Channel. We're glad to have Professor Bill Mullen with us today. Bill Mullen is a professor of English and American Studies at Purdue. His books include Un-American, W.E.B. Du Bois and the Central World Revolution, W.E.B. E. Du Bois, Revolutionary Across the Color Line, Afro-Orientalism, Study of um, Interethnic Anti-Racist Alliance Between Asian and and African-Americans and Popular Fronts, Chicago and African-American Cultural Politics, 1935-1946. to He has been a Fulbright lecturer at Wuhan University in the People's Republic of China. His articles have appeared in Social Text, African-American Review, American Quarterly, Modern Fiction Studies, Jacobian, and Elsewhere. Mullen teaches courses in African-American literature and culture, American studies, working class literature, cultural studies, and post-colonial literature. And today he's here uh, to talk about his great book, uh, James Baldwin, Living in Fire, a book which focuses on Baldwin's uh, radical and queer politics. Bill, thank you very much for being here.
0: Thanks, Morteza. Glad to be here.
1: Thank you. Um, it's customary to start asking our guests how 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 they became an expert in the area that they are so can you tell us a little about yourself what uh, made you interested in american studies and how you became a professor of american studies
0: okay sure Um, my phd is in american literature and uh most was very interested in contemporary 20th century american literature but i'm also as a Marxist and somebody who is involved in uh, political organizing from time to time and constantly interested in political questions, I, <clears throat> I realized the only way I really wanted to study literature was through the lens of sort of radical political movements. And that's really what most of my work has tried to do. My first book is about kind of the intersection of the Communist Party and writers and painters and journalists in Chicago. And, um, You know, James Baldwin was kind of a natural choice for me as a subject because he's at the intersection of radical politics and literature. I mean, he's one of the greatest novelists of the 20th century. He was also one of the most profound uh, political essayists. Uh, He was also, you know, a civil rights organizer and writer. And for me, it felt like uh, coming full circle when I decided to write the book on on Baldwin. I felt like I was coming full circle with my own life as an American studies scholar.
1: And and uh, the book you have written about James Baldwin is fascinating. And uh, one that I like about the book is that there are a lot of facts there which are lesser known. There are lots of videos and documentaries about James Baldwin. And I had a friend of mine who said that I thought I knew James Baldwin until I read this book. So tell us why you decided to write this book. How did the book come about?
0: Uh, I was teaching Baldwin. You know, I've taught Baldwin often on most of my life. And in 2012 and 13, when the Black Lives Matter movement was just kind of emerging after the Trayvon Martin shooting, I was drawn back to teaching Baldwin again because of all the extraordinary things he had written about the history of policing and police violence, which a lot of people had kind of forgotten uh, until Black Lives Matter. And then they began to read Baldwin again. And I was one of those people that was Reading his his past writings to help understand the present, you know, and explain the present and how it was that police, as he said, in 1966, were occupying forces in black communities, which really was the, you know, the kind of the the target, as it were, of the Black Lives Matter movement. So um, it was partly also out of a deep personal fascination with his life. I mean he's always struck me. I lived in New York City and and did my PhD there and taught in uh in the City University of New York system and I kind of felt that Baldwin's life growing up in Harlem and emerging out of that city and becoming a world-class intellectual spoke to spoke to me as well not that I have ever like sort of emulated what baldwin's done but i felt like i knew something i wanted to know more about how this this young black kid um, from a really really poor working class family born in the 1920s in the first half of the 20th century had managed to produce this life extraordinary life an extraordinary literary life so there was in some ways a personal connection, I think, for me, having been like him, uh a a sort of shaped by by the
1: experience of living in New York City. So uh let us talk about James Baldwin. He uh, he had a very, very difficult uh life when he was growing up in the US and uh uh one thing that he kinda of says that saved him was his teacher. Tell us about his childhood and the influence that his teacher had on him. mm mm-hmm. Yeah, Baldwin basically
0: said, you know, for somebody who grew up very, very poor, I mean, his mother was a domestic worker, his father worked at a factory, was also a preacher, but that didn't pay. Um, Really, it was the light, it was reading books and discovering literature that kind of let him rise up, you know, and actually understand what his life actually meant. And when he said, when he was started reading like Charles Dickens novels right when he was 12, 13 year old boy. And he's reading about, you know, Oliver Twist and David Copperfield and uh, industrial uh, factory life in Britain. And this uh, kind of young, young children growing up in uh, in hardship. These books really spoke to him. Weirdly enough, you know, he said, I said, I felt like I was kind of seeing my own life refracted through literature. And by the time he was about thirteen, um, he had become a precocious reader and a really, really fine writer already. And was lucky enough to have, as a school teacher uh, a woman named Arilla Miller, who uh, was a white woman, very left-wing politics. She was at the time; she was his teacher. She was a member of the Communist Party, and she kind of took him under his, her wing and not only encouraged his reading and writing, but began to take him to theater and began to take him to movies, began to try to uh, push him out into the world because she knew he was an exceptional young kid. And they developed a really tight bond and they remained friends the rest of Baldwin's adult life. And he basically looked back at the experience of her as a teacher and said it was really life changing for two reasons. One, he felt recognized. You know, for his intellect, which really mattered, and secondly, you know, he lived he lived in a pretty hostile, race, racist world, and for a white woman to suddenly, you know, show this special interest in him made huge difference for him. He said it was she was the reason I could never fully hate white people, even when I wanted to kill them sometimes for what they were doing to to, to black people like me, and that's a that's a great Baldwin story because he was very interested in the the lives of young black people a lot of his books like his first novel go tell it on the mountain which is basically autobiographical a biographical or about it a young boy trying to navigate harlem in the 1930s he thought that black children were not just the future you know of the race but they were like uh you know in some ways guinea pigs for what racial capitalism did to to black lives and in, and there's even a connection there when I think about somebody like Trayvon Martin or Tamir Rice, you know, young black boys who've been shot down in America. Those are the kinds of lives that that show up in James Baldwin's novels, you know. And in fact, I think you know you could say that he understood he he understood really well that had he had not had better luck or had had he had he not had worse luck, he might have ended up killed by the police as well, you know. One of his First moments of political consciousness was when he was pushed over by a couple of uh New York City police officers when he was ten years old, and he said suddenly I realized that I understood something about the power structure of the world right so that that childhood experience of sort of thinking about as a young boy what oppression racism, poverty actually felt like, and trying to find words and books. Including his own words to express it, to me, that's that was the kind of incubator for for you know the great writer and person that he became.
1: Uh, great! And um, in his book, uh, James Wallen wrote this book, uh, "Fire Next Time," where he talks about his experience uh, in in the church and how he realized even God's are white. God is white, and it's uh, disillusionment basically with the church can you tell us a little about his religious journey maybe
0: yeah so his his father was a high, really devout storefront preacher and a very conservative kind of fun, what we would call fundamentalist christian and um wanted Baldwin his son to become a preacher and follow in his footsteps and Baldwin began preaching when he was about 14 in church he was really gifted he was brilliant with language and a lot of his you know uh development as a writer, I think, began with his his understanding and the power and the poetry of words as he was learning how to 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 preach. But by the time he was about 16, he was having questions in his mind about Christianity that were related to questions about, for example, his own father. He had a tumultuous relationship with a, a man who was oftentimes angry and could be um sort of abusive in certain ways emotionally and baldwin uh didn't want that model in his life and he didn't want christianity to be the kind of crutch that i think he thought it was for his father as a way of dealing with pain and there was a third element to this where you know he was he was sensing his own homosexuality about the time he was going through adolescence and he was trying to to fit into the church And that was a problem. Like he knew that if he were to come out as a gay man or to pursue these feelings, it would be a problem for him uh, as as a member of that church. And these things kind of pushed him out. Like when he graduated high school in 18, when he was 18, he left the church, left Harlem, moved to Greenwich Village. It was a kind of a break with sort of certain kinds of orthodoxies sexual and 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 religious and it started him on a totally different path of, of 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 self-exploration which involved confronting his sexuality um think and 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 led him to to write partly of uh, the this book the fire next time which you know is was published in 1963 and was a manifesto really on the america's inability to resolve, like it's extraordinary racial uh, hierarchy. And uh, Baldwin basically prophesied that if the United States didn't get its act together, there would be blood in the streets, which basically became the story, you know, of the later 1960s and the Watts riots and the Detroit riots and the assassination of Martin Luther King. But in, in the fire next time, what actually drew him to the book was a religious question. He was fascinated by the rising popularity of the Nation of Islam, which was the, the church established in Detroit in the 1930s, also had strong basis in Chicago, which was essentially merging a kind of Black nationalist politics with Islam. And of course, that's the matrix that produced Malcolm X. And by 1960 and 61, Malcolm X's galvanizing you know especially working class black audiences across the united states preaching among other things that christianity is the white man's religion and that it's always going to stab you in the back right and that was of course rooted in things like slavery where you know malcolm and others told us that it was the, the the those those slave owners who were the most ardent christians were oftentimes the most abusive masters right so Baldwin goes and meets and interviews Elijah Muhammad, who's the head of the Nation of Islam at the time, and he's trying to understand what is it about this appeal of a kind of anti-Christian, anti-white supremacist uh, religion to, to the black masses. And for him, it was like his own, it was bound up with his own you know, doubts and questions he had had about the, the, the effectiveness and the utility of Christianity for people like himself, right? Who, as I as I mentioned, had his own <clears throat> identity questions that, that, that he thought the church could not resolve. So, the Fire Next Time is an amazing sort of autobiographical moment in his life of religious examination, but also using that book to explode these myths about white Christian benevolency in America, right? And, the, 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 you know, he actually uses the Bible, he uses um, uh, Noah's, you know, God gave Noah the rainbow sign, first time, fire, first time water, the fire next time, the prophecy of kind of the end of the earth as a curse on the United States if it cannot uh, f- find a way to actually uh, end the brutal suppression and exploitation of black people. So it's a, it's an
1: extraordinary book. Uh, let us talk about uh, his journeys. Uh, before reading your book, I thought he only spent like a few months, or at most a year, in Turkey. But it was uh, the suicide of his friend that kind of pushed him to leave the United States. And he said somewhere, I guess, that if I knew that if I hadn't left the U.S., that would be my fate as well. So why did he decide to leave the United States? And and he famously said. That he spent ten years in Turkey, and he famously said that um, Turkey saved my life. Mm-hmm. Um, so, t- talk to us about that place.
0: So, he first leaves the U.S. to go to Paris in nineteen forty-eight. Um, he's, he's like twenty-four years old. He goes there because, uh, I know, as you said, he, he said if I had stayed in America, I would have either killed somebody or killed myself. He was kind of at the end of his rope about racism in, in the in the U.S. He was poor. He, he 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 kept jobs and he lost jobs. He was also desperate to just commit to writing, and he had some examples of people like Richard Wright, who was one of his early idols, who had actually just two years before in 1946 himself left the United States for Paris for very similar reasons, um, and Wright, Wright and other black writers were beginning to see Paris as a place where one, it was cheaper to live. And two, you wouldn't have to deal with the kind of American racial hierarchy. And so Baldwin found that appealing and he went and he left and he began. He threw himself into his writing wholeheartedly uh, when he arrived there and began to write the, some of the essays, especially uh, that were first published and, and helped you know, put him on the map as a literary figure. Um, he stays in, He's in and out of Paris from 1948 to about 1960. He comes back to the united states in the late 1950s after for example the birmingham bus boycott uh, and the beginnings of martin luther king's southern civil rights campaign Um, and he comes back specifically to participate in that in that movement he participates partly as a writer he's assigned by uh, prominent american magazines to go south and write journalistic reports or what we would call reportage about uh the battle to integrate schools like in little rock arkansas uh, and the attacks on black protesters and it's a huge life-changing moment for the like re-emerging back into an america where now black people are rising up for against the same things that made him leave in 1948 you know he's he's terribly excited to see people even younger than himself mobilizing en masse against racism capitalism in america so he spends he's in and out of paris he's, he goes between paris and and the u.s in the late 50s he also spends some time in new york in this period because he's among other things he's also trying to establish a theater career uh he begins writing plays in the 1950s he writes his his, his first play called amen corner is actually produced in the 1950s he's also for some time in this period also works as an act uh, tries to train as an actor Um, and he meets a young turkish actor in new york city who uh persuades him to come to istanbul he says come visit you know we'll, we'll 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 talk theater we'll we'll show you we'll show you my homeland and so baldwin takes him up on the offer and um interestingly he actually goes to Turkey from Israel, which he visits briefly, and maybe we'll talk about that later. But Turkey immediately is sort of a new landscape for him as a writer and as a thinker. The, there's, there's a vibrant Turkish intellectual community there, which he becomes a part of. He falls into the Turkish theater scene. He by the late 1960s, when he's he buys a home there. That's how much he likes it. Um, he begins to uh, write, m- many of his most important books of the 1960s are drafted from Istanbul, okay, uh, his 1962 novel Another Country, which is actually, as a title, tells you that Baldwin was thinking about exile, he was thinking about the, the, the condition of being outside of America, which by the, by the 1960s had become kind of a permanent condition. And he also feels, I think, two other things in Turkey, which are really important, three things. Uh, one, he he there's a certain anonymity he has there. He's becoming really famous in America, but Baldwin was always, sometimes felt suffocated by celebrity. He He was both constantly on television and appearing in magazines, but he absolutely craved a private life. And I think he had a private life in Istanbul that he couldn't have had if he had been living in New York City, for example, where he was constantly under attention and scrutiny and siege, that was one thing. secondly, um you know, Baldwin wanted to live as a gay man, where <clears throat> any place he could. I think in Paris and in Istanbul, he felt more in some ways at ease with his sexuality and not under the microscope of the American. Uh, media, for example, which was constantly prying into his life. Um, there's a very good book about Baldwin's time in, in Turkey called uh, by Magdalena Zabaraska a, a scholar called The Erotics of Exile. And she makes this wonderful argument that Baldwin kind of deepens his sexual identif- self-identification as a gay man, um, partly because he feels uh, emancipated to, to do so when, when he's in Turkey. And the third thing is, you know, it can, he's at, he continues his his understanding of let's call it the east and the west, right? Turkey is this fascinating place that sits sort of straddles, you know, Europe and Asia, right? And um that's that really interests Baldwin, especially after writing the Fire Next Time where he's doing this deep interrogation of Islam. He's now living in a Muslim majority country, right? Where he's he's a kind of racial and religious minority himself, but he's beginning to like Malcolm X when he goes to Mecca, you know, famously in 1964, and realizes that Islam is a world religion, not just something that Black nationalists subscribe to. In Turkey, I think Baldwin begins to understand, becomes more kind of worldly in his understanding of not not only like how Turk. Turkish culture and Islam fits into the world. But seeing the United States differently, again, from an outside vantage point, which is a huge theme in his writing, Baldwin often said, you know, uh, you really only know your homeland after you leave it. And so Turkey gave him another kind of prism by which to, uh, uh, ex- explore what it meant to be a Westerner, but Baldwin once described himself as a, a bastard of the West meaning like uh, as a young Black boy, like an orphan, right, in this so-called American family. Um, That perspective, I think, helped come into focus for him when he was actually outside of the United States looking back at it and realizing what exile and uh, expatriatism actually meant for him at a deeper level about his own sort of dis-ease, as it were, about being a Black American. Something that Du Bois said, you know, famously creates this double consciousness, this kind of feeling that you're at war with yourself. So that that he took that war with himself to Paris. He took it to Turkey. Um, it gave him a place to kind of think through these this this problem of consciousness um, in in areas where he was learning about
1: himself in new ways too it's fascinating to see how his years in, in in Istanbul formed his identity and also his his, his artistic identity as well and I, and I think it also influenced uh his the, the, kind of the community that he was with in France as well because I watched a documentary some time ago and he he had a lot of friends from the from Arab Algerians in in France but uh how about uh, another fact that I did not know about him was that he did travel to Israel as well, and that's where he came to, um, and he made an interesting comment about Israel, which I'll let you talk about it. And uh, so he saw, he felt that he was in America again there because of uh, the way Palestinians were being treated. That's right.
0: Yeah, one of the uh, one of the themes I really wanted to look at was James Baldwin's relationship to palestine and zionism and uh just to give just to give some context baldwin grew up in the in the united states where there's it was tr- tremendous anti-semitism and he had lots of jewish friends growing up and some of the first editors that helped publish his work were jewish he came to understand racism in america partly by understanding anti-semitism with which he was always both opposed to and obviously very sympathetic to Jewish, Jewish, uh, the history of Jews under anti-Semitism. And um, in the 1950s, uh, like a lot of African-Americans, they actually saw Israel as kind of a liberation project. You know, this place, this idea that Jews who had been persecuted and thrown out of Europe uh, would find a homeland that was actually somewhat of a progressive idea for like black Americans who, you know, forever had kind of dreamed about, you know, a homeland of their own, you know, Marcus Garvey wanted to take, take Africans, you know, African Americans to Liberia. Um, So Baldwin goes to Israel intrigued, you know, to sort of find out, well, gosh, is Israel really all that I thought it might be? Uh, but even as he did so, he once in 1970, he said, you know, I thought about going to live there when I left America in 48. He said, but which side of Israel would I have lived on? And what is re- what he was referring to was the, the partition, right? That when the United with the UN created Israel, it partitioned it into a, 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 the state of Israel and Palestine as separate entities. And the Palestinians had no state. Israel was a state. The Palestinians were stateless people. So when he goes there, what really strikes him, and to to go to your comment, he says, man, he said, when I see the Palestinians living across from those barbed wire fences, I feel like I'm back in Harlem. Like, I recognize this, okay? And this, this identification builds upon something that did happen to him in Paris. He arrives in Paris just a few years before the Algerian revolution begins. And in Paris, he's actually seen Arabs shot down by the police in the streets because they are aligning themselves with this anti-colonial movement taking place in Algeria. He goes to jail in 1955. He's falsely accused of stealing something in Paris and he looks around and says, "Man, everybody else here is an Arab. They all look like me." And so by the time he, he's been to, t- to Istanbul and he's gone to Israel, he's actually beginning to understand That, as he put it in one of his pieces of writing, uh, I understood that the history of the Arabs was also my history, right? That we had been, to go back to his metaphor, bastards of the West. Many times the Western imperial, Israel, he, he said later, was a colonial project. He said it was created, he came to understand, by the French and the Germans and the Americans because they all wanted... One, they wanted; they were happy to send Jews someplace else because there was so much anti-Semitism in, in in Europe and North America. But they also wanted a, you know, a, a, a political proxy in the Middle East so they could kind of have a foothold against the Arab world. And this is, of course, a huge story of the 1950s and 1960s as Arab countries are beginning to decolonize, right? As you know, Egypt is throwing out the British. Algeria is throwing out the French. Baldwin, by the 1960s, is just as passionate about the American civil rights movement as he is the struggle for African and Arab decolonization. And he writes about this, especially in this wonderful book called No Name in the Street in 1972. And he says, look, if if the United States really wanted to be a, 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 a democracy that put human rights at the forefront, we would be supporting the Arab nations and the palestinians not the israelis because he had come to understand israel as an oppressor state which it is to this day so i i wanted to really tell that story about james baldwin because i think many people uh, remember him for his his writing about civil rights here in the united states but less for his understanding of civil rights for say the palestinians which you know, by the 1960s and the 1970s was also a recurring uh, subject for him as a writer. And
1: again, that just shows that, uh, that kind of reminded me of my friend's comments when he said that uh, he thought he knew James Baldwin until he read your book, because there are lots of interesting facts there uh, that we don't know much about. And um, I had a conversation with you a few months ago, and uh, we talked about similarities between James Baldwin and also that great uh, Palestinian writer, uh Raslan Kanafani, and uh, you actually drew some really, really interesting parallels between the two in terms of they had never met each other, of course, and uh, the way they were similar. One was an American guy, and the other one was a Palestinian guy. Who were both fighting for justice.
0: Yeah, yeah. So for those for those who might not know, Ghassan Kanafani was a Palestinian radical, a Marxist. A journalist, um, a novelist, uh, and f- one of the leading members of the Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine, which, in the late 1960s, was the the most militant uh, group fighting for Palestinian liberation, and so much so that uh, in 1972, Kanafani was assassinated by the Mossad, the Israeli uh, secret secret service. Um, for his political activism and i was really struck by how parallel in some ways his life was to james baldwin's they were born about the same time uh in the first half of the 20th century Um, khanifani was a a young very young person when the state of israel was created and he, he and his own family were became what we would call diasporic subjects, right? They, they had, he, he lived in, in Jordan. Uh, he, and that, 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 it struck me that in 1948, which was the year that Israel was created, that was also the year that Baldwin left America, like left his own homeland. And so you have these two writers who are kind of partly exiled from their own land. And they also want to speak on behalf of the exiled. And Kanafani um, spends his entire life, like Baldwin, writing uh, journalism, history, and and fiction, which illustrates really the, the the plight of the Palestinians living under Israeli settler colonialism. Uh, and he tells the stories like Baldwin does, always from the point of view of the oppressed. You know, Edward Said was a great fan of Kanafani and he was a great fan of baldwin and you know saeed said for himself he said he said what is zionism zionism is is um zionism must be understood from the standpoint of its victims right in other words it was the political ideology that was uh, that helped create the state of israel as a settler colonial state but he said i always wanted to understand it from the standpoint of my of the, of its victims that that's exactly how baldwin and kanafani viewed zionism it's how they viewed western imperialism uh, it's how they viewed west colonialism um, they were both opposed to all uh, uh uh colonial wars for example baldwin was a like kanafani was a was very strongly opposed to the us war in vietnam so and one other thing that made them similar to me I mean Baldwin was uh, hounded by the FBI. Uh, he, the FBI opened a file against Baldwin in about 1960, and J. Edgar Hoover, who was the head of the FBI, you know, considered him a, an enemy of the United of the of the American state, and this was because Baldwin was constantly criticizing American racism. He was he was supporting like the Cuban Revolution, in in uh, 1959. So they were both dissidents, right? That that would be the other thing. They were dissident writers and intellectuals who were committed, totally committed, to using their art and their writing to speak on behalf of their people. In fact, they both said something almost identical about that. Conafani and Baldwin both said, in effect, the, the the role of the artist is to speak for the people. And um I think I think that. Had they ever met, I think they would have understood each other perfectly. <laughs> yeah, it
1: was a great comparison. Uh, how about his, James Baldwin's relationship with unions? Because he was not only uh, discriminated against by, by the vast majority of, let's say, establishment, but he was also somehow discriminated against by his own folks, by the black people. Some of them were in the unions. Uh, can you talk about his relationship or his critique of capitalism or unions, maybe?
0: Yeah, another theme I wanted to talk about was was James Baldwin's critique of capitalism. Um, in 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 1972, in this book No Name In the Street, he said, "I'm a socialist." Um, he said, and if you look at if you look at his life, his criticism of American racism was inseparable from his criticism of American capitalism. He understood that capitalism produced racism and that you would never eliminate racism until you got rid of capitalism. And something that, you know, very few uh, scholars have written about is his, his exposure to radical politics when he was a young man. I mentioned Arilda Miller, who was a Communist Party member. I mean, her husband took him to a May Day parade, which was the, you know, the day of international communism when he was a young boy. When he was living in New York in the early 40s, he, uh, he became interested in Trotskyism. He began to read the writings of Leon Trotsky. Uh, he met a young Trotskyist named Stan Weir, a working class guy who tried to recruit him to the Trotskyist movement. And Baldwin never joined the movement, but he, the ideas that he began to read there, which fundamentally argued, that capitalism was an, an oppressive system; those ideas never left him. And if you read his writing in the 1960s, for example, um, he, he had this great line, which appears in the uh, this wonderful film "I Am Not Your Negro," which some of your audience may have seen. It's a brilliant biographical film about him. But he's, you know, somebody said, "Ask him what white supremacy was," and he says, "Well, it's, white supremacy is Chase Bank." And what he meant was, you know, it's it's the international structure of capitalism which upholds white supremacy. And that starts with the slave trade, right? And and it runs all the way up through um, the 1980s when he died. And, you know, the Ronald Reagan was president of the United States, the man who gave who gave us neoliberalism, right, Um, who really argued that the free market would solve everything. I mean, Baldwin hated Ronald Reagan with a passion, not just because he was such a neoliberal pro-capitalist, because he had, you know, he had he had fired Angela Davis when she was a professor at UCLA in 1970 because she was a communist. And James Baldwin was not only a friend of Angela Davis, but wrote this beautiful letter when she was, you know, in jail, um, charged with, with murder, falsely, saying, you know, uh, we got to stand with you because uh, if they don't, if we don't stand with you, they're going to come for us in the morning. So, but my point is, when Baldwin looked at what we would call the American ruling class and saw people like Ronald Reagan, those were his enemies. Those those were people he understood from a very young age were his enemies. And so, I think when people read his work, you'll notice how important social class is almost all of Baldwin's stories are about working class lower middle class people really really struggling to stay alive and that's for him it's not just a metaphor but it was his own experience of capitalism even when he got you know wealthy and successful um he always understood the fragility of of and the precarity of of life under capitalism and um he wrote about it to the very end of his life i think it's a uh when i i say in the introduction to my book that james baldwin was a revolutionary and i mean several things by that but i i also think that the, the the baldwin that we need to recover now is not just the the baldwin of uh of black lives matter but it's the baldwin who would have probably supported the occupy movement you know in, uh, that, that said, that you know
1: we're the 99 percent and they're the one percent. That's a theme of his writing, too. I think the brilliance of his activism and also his, intell- his intellectual journey was that he he never separated, as you mentioned, uh, class struggle, capitalism from issues of race. He saw them as being two sides of the same coin, and he also called this version of uh, his version of socialism uh, Yankee doodle socialism, which was he was calling for. Uh, and uh, it, it, uh, that's an indigenous idea of socialism in America, a native idea of socialism right
0: yeah, and you know I think he meant a couple of things by that um he, he said he was- he was talking about the Black panther Party, and they they were calling themselves socialists, and what he said was, you know we black radicals are trying to develop a Marxism and a socialism that speaks to this historical specificity. Of American history, from slavery to the present, and that meant an indigenous socialism. That would also take up questions of genocide of Native Americans and attacks on migrants and immigrants. Right. So he wanted a he wanted socialism that would that would il- illuminate America's special history of racism and capitalism. But he was also uh, turned off by, for example, Stalinism um he baldwin didn't think the soviet union was socialist right like he had that's that he learned that from the trotskyists in the 1940s that was trotsky's position you know stalin is not a revolutionary he's actually a counter-revolutionary so in the 1940s and 50s baldwin is basically saying russia is not the answer um and this puts him in a little bit of a fix in the 50s he kind of becomes a little bit of a cold war liberal for short time when he says, well, America may be terrible, but it's not Stalin's Russia. And he kind of outgrows that position once he actually begins a deeper analysis of things like American imperialism and the war on Vietnam and, and you know, the continuous attacks on Black people in the South. Um, but yeah, he was he was struggling like so many, you know, I think Black left-wing intellectuals have done. You know, Cedric Robinson wrote this great book, Called Black Marxism, right, in which he's pondering people like Du Bois and, and Richard Wright and C.L.R. James and others who have tried to develop uh, uh, a Marxism which draws specifically out of Black intellectual traditions and Black and, and Black historical experience. Baldwin belongs in that group, you know. He he is, in my opinion, a Black Marxist.
1: Uh, let us talk about his rift, his his disagreement with Malcolm X, and I guess it's a timely one because today that we're talking about it. Yesterday was um, Malcolm X's anniversary, uh, anniversary of his assassination. So, what was his critique of the Nation of Islam? I guess he he called he called he called it the re- reverse of white supremacy logic, but he changed his position later on. So, talk to us about Malcolm X and James Baldwin.
0: Yeah, well. I mentioned that Baldwin had in the fifties, you know, he was really an integrationist in the 1950s. Um, He really thought racial coexistence was possible and necessary. And the nation of Islam challenged that by basically, you know, arguing that black people should organize for themselves, right? What, what they would call Malcolm X would call black self-determination should be a goal. And Baldwin struggled with that idea, but was eventually won to it. Um, you can see this in interviews. He has he has conversations with Malcolm X in the early 1960s. And Baldwin is not sold on the Nation of Islam. He's not sold on the idea that black self-organizing outside of an interracial framework is the right solution. But across the 1960s, as he's, you know, as he loses friends like medgar evers who were murdered by Ku klux klansmen in the south and malcolm x is assassinated in 1965 and martin luther king is is assassinated in 1968 uh by the time he's experienced the massive loss of life the kind of what feels like slow genocide against black people in the united states uh, he really revert, revises his thinking, and he looks back in the late '60s and 19, early '70s, and he says, "You know what? I probably was being—I was probably playing the good, the good black man to Malcolm X's black, bad black man back then, because I was talking integration, he was talking black self-organizing. Um, he basically—he basically, he basically uh, revises his position." to say that what Malcolm was saying and doing was right for that time. It was the right message for that time. So he, for him, Malcolm X was, at the end of the day, a real hero, like a real hero. And it's, uh, it's one reason he wanted to write a book about Malcolm and, and, and Martin Luther King and Medgar and Evers, which he never finished, but it was because each
1: of them had had a huge imprint on on his thinking. Uh, thank you. And uh, let's talk about his legacy. So he was this huge intellectual figure. He was very popular, quite well known. Uh, but it seems that uh, maybe toward 1990s, his fame, uh, maybe decline is not the right word, but there were other people. So he was not so much in the spotlight as he was before. Yeah. Um, so what happened back then? But he came back again, He, like you said at the beginning right, of the interview. Yeah. he's. he's <laughs> Uh, I yeah. think anything controversial that happens, some of these great writers come back to light again. Like when Donald Trump was elected as the president, everybody started reading 1960 and uh, 1984 again.
0: Yeah, so
1: <laughs> yeah, that's right. Um,
0: Baldwin was an absolute superstar in the 1960s. He was the most famous black writer in America. <clears throat> he was the first black writer to be on the cover of Time magazine. Um, in the 19th, but his, reput- his reputation and his writing were also tied to what I will call the civil rights movement and the black power movements, because he was so brilliant at both participating and writing about them. When those movements began to fade in the 1970s, Baldwin faded with them. He, his subject had been lost. His writing subject had been lost, right? Um, so he was for a while kind of unsure about what what he was going to even say about the United States. And by the way, he was in and out of the U.S. a lot in the 60s because of the civil rights movement and black power. Seventies, he spends more time in France. He goes back, he he had bought a house in southern France and he spent more time living there. So he was out of the public eye. Those two things combined to kind of begin to, I won't say diminish his reputation, but he was just, you know, he just wasn't as visible. In the 80s he writes a few books none of which are as successful as his earlier books which which partly has to do with their subject matter he writes novels called like tell me how long the train's been gone and just above my head and they're brilliant novels but they're different than his earlier work they're more about black domestic life they're not as what we might maybe what might people they might not be as overtly political to some people as others um and then he, he gets ill. I mean, he's, 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 he's in ill health, a good part of the 1980s, and his writing is slowing down. Um, and he passes away in 1986. Now, what's interesting about his death is that as soon as he dies, almost every Black writer, including, for example, you know, a relatively still then young Toni Morrison, stands up and says, I, James Baldwin is why I am a writer. Okay. And there's this outpouring of tributes. You you can see it at his funeral in uh, in, in, in New York, where writer after writer stands up and, and and praises Baldwin for kicking open the door for other black writers, right? For giving them a voice, uh, for talking politics, for being fearless, right? <clears throat> Amiri Baraka, who's one of the great poets of that time, calls him God's revolutionary black mouth, right? And 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 that begins that it's around that time in the 90s when Baldwin's reputation as a writer with the public was not maybe what it what it had been in the 60s in terms of book sales. But he begins, for example, to be taught in American colleges and universities. His books immediately become, you know, part of the canon of what's becoming African-American literary studies. Remember, we didn't really study black literature widely in, in in American universities until really the 1980s and the 1990s, right? So Baldwin's books begin to get picked up in an academic setting. And um, and then I think, you know, he kind of lives in that space through the early 2000s. And then when the Black Lives Matter movement does does emerge, again, there's this extraordinary rediscovery of his work. Uh, Ta-Nehisi Coates, writes this really beautiful book, um, Between the World and Me, and it's about the Black Lives Matter movement, but it's, it's actually patterned after uh, The Fire Next Time. It's actually written in the form of a letter to his son. And Baldwin's book was a letter to his nephew. And suddenly a whole, Jessica Ward, and so a whole series of writers are writing books recovering Baldwin. Um, there's new scholarship about Baldwin. There's new essays and appreciation and it has to do with it, it has to do with black lives matter and policing but it was almost like um, James Baldwin was so ahead of his time that the time had to change for him for us to catch up with him right and so suddenly so many things that he had written forty and fifty years ago seemed like they were speaking to the to the moment that we're in and I think that we could say the same about Shakespeare. <laughs> we could say the same about uh, Michelangelo, right? There are artists who constantly interpret uh, the present for us because there's something so deep and, and extraordinary. And Baldwin's one of those writers. And I think um, I think it, I don't I don't think Baldwin Baldwin has so many legacies. And the other one I think is really important to talk about is he was without question the first. Openly gay, incredibly important, successful black writer. Even though it wasn't a, the a main the main focus of his work, but you know, your people here should read Giovanni's Room, which is this extraordinary second novel he writes while he's in Paris about a gay male relationship. Right? This is the nineteen fifties. No one's writing books about this in the nineteen fifties, and the book does really well, and it it opens a door. Right? So this. So what what we see in the in this, in the post James Baldwin world is is a whole s- a stream of writers gay lesbian queer who look back and say wow you know James Baldwin helped helped open that space for us and that it's hard to say which is his most important legacy but I think I would say that that was one of the most important
1: and just following up on his Let's say rereading and rediscovering James Baldwin. Uh, it's it, you, you've taught James Baldwin to a lot of university students. So, if you want to maybe recommend a couple of his writings to high school kids, especially these days where I guess there are controversies around some books are banned from high schools, I think uh, the importance of Jane Baldwin has, has never been um, significance of James Baldwin has never been more important. So, what what would you recommend to high school kids if they want to approach James Baldwin?
0: Oh I think teachers. uh I think uh Go Tell It on the Mountain you know which is a what we would call a coming of age story it's about it's about high school age kids uh it's about himself it's about growing up it's about parents it's about sexuality uh it's a beautiful beautiful story um I mean The Fire Next Time is such an important book and it's such a moving book and it's such a great work of history of the 1960s I think that You know really should be on everyone's reading list um i think uh he wrote a really lovely novel that was made into a a hollywood film not long ago called if beale street could talk and it's a love story between a young black male artist and and his lover and and it's also about the system of mass incarceration and it was written in the early 1970s but it holds up so well and so so beautifully as a story about Black life and Black love and uh, I think that the film adaptation um, is actually really really exceptional as well and that's something that is available. I think um, I think the the Raul Peck film um, I am Not Your Negro, which I believe is probably still on Netflix, is a great introduction to Baldwin's life. It's um, uh, what's one thing that's beautiful about it is the entire, uh screenplay of the of the film is james baldwin's own words read by samuel l jackson and it's gorgeous it's just beautiful to hear the voiceover you know what it seems like the voice of james baldwin hovering over the film that's that's a very available p- point of entry for baldwin i think those would be some of the some of the things that i would recommend and i and i mentioned giovanni's room which is such a beautiful novel too and and uh, a book that you know doesn't often get read partly because it's set in Europe and it's about gay life but it's just uh, it's it's extraordinary it's as radical as anything
1: he ever wrote and he also wrote a short article to to teachers i don't remember the name of the article
0: yeah he wrote a, he wrote a great article called it's called a talk to teachers and it was um i think it's available on the internet if you google google it it's a it's a he was invited to speak to some school teachers in New York City. Uh, I think it was 1963, roughly. It's an amazing piece. Uh, I'm glad you reminded me of it. Like I think for young people to read, because you know he basically says to these teachers, "Understand that you have these really important Black lives in your hands, and it's your job to make sure one that they understand." how opposed the world is going to be to them, but two, to give them the, the tools and the confidence to stand up for themselves and to fight. And it's a it's a great piece. And it's I think it speaks, it's almost like Baldwin talking to his own younger self, you know, about what he would have liked to have heard when he was growing up in Harlem in the 1930s. Probably probably something like what Orilla Miller told him about how you have to learn to to fight for yourself. There's a one, one other thing that's a bit more obscure, but it's also on, on the internet about black, uh, youth culture in 1960, I think three, again, it's called take this hammer. It's a, it's a documentary film that Baldwin made where he he walks around the city of San Francisco and he just interviews young black men, mostly living in the city and, uh, asks them about their lives. Baldwin's all over the internet. You can see Baldwin on TV shows, and you know debating William F. Buckley at, at, at Cambridge. But this little film, again, if you're sort of young, young and black in America, it's really extraordinary to see both the similarities, but also the, you know, the, the differences between our time and that time. Uh, it really it shows you again how Baldwin was always committed to getting, you know, what, what Said called the, the point of view of the oppressed, right? He was always trying to ask people who were sort of living at the bottom of America what it was like. Yeah, it's a beautiful
1: film. Professor Bill Mullen, thank you very much for your time. Absolute pleasure to talk to you. Thank you, Morteza. It's been a fabulous talk with you. I appreciate it.